Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, February 9th, we are studying John chapter 7, verses 32 to 52. As the Feast of Booze draws to an end, Jesus continues to teach the people of Jerusalem, and the questions about who Jesus is continue to swirl. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning to you all. Pastor Ulmer, as we get started today, give us some context. Remind me where remind us where we are in the Gospel of John, and particularly what's been happening in chapter seven up to this point. Yeah, and I I think it'd be important even to go all the way back to, to John six, if that is amenable to you, my brother. Go for it. Um I, I think the the kind of um the the issue in this particular story that we're studying this morning stems all the way back from the beginning of six, uh, where Jesus takes a, a large group of people, sits them down, and then does his great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has another interaction uh, with the crowd on the other side of, of the lake, and he instructs them that to have a portion of him, they have to eat his body and drink his blood. And of course, this is an interaction where many of those who had uh, been interested in Jesus, who had listened to Jesus, who are curious about Jesus, um, him telling them to eat his body and drink his blood was just way too much for them. And uh, they departed from him. And as as far as I see the 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 context in this text is once we get into the the feast of the booze it's it's really this conversation and the miracle that happened that that people are still kind of buzzing about. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, because the miracle of chapter of... five was in Jerusalem. Chapter six was in Galilee. Now he's back in Jerusalem. So it, it makes sense that that miracle from his time in Jerusalem is going to be the buzz still. Yeah, so you you got you got this big buzz, and um, at the beginning of chapter seven, you have this very kind of strange interaction with Jesus and his brothers. Um, kind of the context, I'm sure that you you talked about uh, in yesterday's uh, the previous episode of Sharper Iron, talking about what's going on here is that the feast of booths, which they are. Um, participating in in this text was one of the three major pilgrimage feasts of the Jewish of the Jewish faith and basically what that meant was any able-bodied um, man of the Jews was supposed to go to Jerusalem 
um, in order to participate in the, the festivities, the festivals, the sacrifices, the, the ritual meals. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, it was essential to, to go to Jerusalem for at least one of these a year. Is that correct? Yeah, you, this was an important part of the, the Israelite faith, and it's made plain in the Old Testament and would have been a, a pretty important thing in Jesus' day as well. Yeah. So so you have this interaction at the beginning of 7 with, with Jesus' brothers and Jesus saying, um, hey, it's it's kind of time for the, the Feast of Booze. Let's go to Jerusalem. And, and Jesus, of course, tells them that he's not going after they leave uh, for the feast, Jesus kind of goes up secretly, and um, he kind of hears the the rumblings about the the miracles that he did, and he starts teaching them, um, and he starts teaching them. And when Jesus kind of comes out in the open, the religious leaders they sick uh, their uh, officers of the temple on Jesus to try to arrest him. He evades them, and then. There's a conversation about is uh, Jesus the Christ. Well, that's what kind of pre, uh, preceded what we're getting into today. On a, on a different day of this festival, uh, Jesus comes out into public again and kind of stirs up another uh, controversy by his coming into public and teaching. Right. He, he didn't want to show up publicly at the beginning. He comes secretly, but he has made himself known there in the middle of the feast. That was what we looked at yesterday. We're still in the context of that feast, and what we hear Jesus speak today in the midst of that controversy is very much going to relate with what's happening at that Feast of Booths. We're also going to pick up some really important scriptural themes today concerning the use of water that we've seen in John and certainly is elsewhere in the scriptures. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. This is John chapter 7, beginning at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's our text for today. That's John chapter 7, verses 32 to 52. All right, so Pastor Omar, tell us a little bit more about these officers that are sent to arrest Jesus there at the beginning of, of the text. Give us that, that opening verse. Yeah, so this was one thing I'll, I'll admit to you, which I did in our discussion before this, and I'll admit it to everybody. This was something I really didn't know before I was assigned this text in the study, that likely these officers were officers that were a part of the temple complex itself. And as such, uh, these officers were uh, likely, um, almost certainly, from the Levitical uh, class, uh, which means that um, a couple things. Number one, um, in this particular instance, uh, they're getting sent out to arrest Jesus, and, and we'll deal with them again when they return to the Pharisees and the rulers, that these wouldn't have been uh, kind of outside uh, contracted soldiers uh, who would have been maybe from the Romans or another Gentile group that was there. These were people who were Jewish. These were people who would have been uh, brought up inside the Levitical knowledge of the religious system. Uh, so when they're out here uh, looking for Jesus, arresting Jesus, they, they do so without kind of an ignorant or naive understanding of the religious aspects of what's going on. Mm. Number two, what I kind of found interesting is that these guys would have been completely under the control of uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, which basically meant that uh, if they got, if there was a disturbance in the temple, they would have been the ones who would have been sent to take care of it. But they also could have been used to um, to en- enact vendettas against people that they didn't like who were in the in the temple sphere. Mm. So we were talking about this text yesterday in terms of not knowing a lot about it. And this is one of those texts that both the guest and I decided yesterday because it doesn't show up in the lectionary all that often. It's one that at least we're a little less familiar with. And I, I think that's, you know, so your admission, you weren't sure about these officers before. Hey, I wasn't yeah. either. There's, there's a lot here that, again, this is just a less familiar part of the Gospel of John, I think. So it's a great opportunity for us to, to sit down and find all the good things that sometimes we miss when the lectionary, which is not a bad thing by any means, the lectionary just has to skip over certain sections. So this is one of those those chances for us to, to dig into a text that is very important, but we may not be quite as familiar with. So I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one that's not as familiar with John chapter 7. So, yeah, no problem. So Pastor Ulmer, there's the, those are the officers. They are sent by the Pharisees and the chief priests to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus begins speaking, presumably to them, to the officers. That's kind of how I'm picturing this, is that the officers are going to be at least among this audience, maybe not the only audience, because in verse 35 it's going to say the Jews as well. And there's going to be, as we'll see toward the end of the text again, this division among the people. But the officers are now at least a part of this group and among the primary part of this audience, as we will see when they return, as you mentioned. So Jesus is teaching in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. 
And then the rest of this little section is all of the Jews who've heard him saying, what's he talking about? What does yeah, he mean? He so that's the question for us, I suppose, Pastor Ulmer. What is Jesus talking about? Yeah, so I think you got a nice little, at least, continuation of what, what Jesus was talking about earlier in the festival, which you, which you talked about with your, from your previous guest, uh, where Jesus is really focusing in on the things that he teaches, not his words, but the words of him who sent me, right? Yeah, that's Big right. Big theme from, from the previous section. So here, kind of fast-forwarding uh, into this teaching on, like, I guess we're not to the last and greatest day yet, but in this period of time, he's kind of continuing that mo- motif of um, the, the person who sent him. Of course, we know uh, as Christians who have presumably read and believed in the entire uh, gospel of Jesus Christ according to St. John, we know what he is pointing to, um, that he is telling them here uh, that when, when the time comes, uh, when, when his time is complete, uh, he is going to go away from them, and he is going to go away from them because he is ultimately going to die on the cross. And and the goal of that ultimately is going to be returning to uh, the Heavenly Father, um, where at at least in, in the way, in the direct way that he is going to return to him, they, they are not going to be, a, they are not going to immediately be able to go. Um, I hope I made that clear. So it, just to, to try to reiterate or to, to rephrase that so that we, we are as clear as possible, when Jesus is talking about, I'll be with you a little longer, then I'm going to him who sent me, and they're not going to be able to find him because they can't come there. He's he's ultimately pointing them forward to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And then yes. because they don't believe in him, that's why they are not going to be able to find him. They're not going to come to him is because they don't believe in him. Is that a, is that kind of putting that together? Yeah. And I, I think you add, add that to that, a text that you'll be coming up to here in a couple of weeks in John 14, when he has a very similar conversation with his own disciples. Um, he tells them he's going to go away, that they uh, know the way to where he is going and his disciples respond, well, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, of course you do. I'm the way, the truth, and life. That through hit, through faith in what he is about to do, they're going to have access to the Father, uh, to uh, the new creation that he is preparing for them. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking even a little bit farther ahead than John 14, but I, I see the relationship that you're bringing out, especially where Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. Going forward into John 16, that's where my mind was going because of this use of the the little while or a little while longer that's here. In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. And of course, that part of the reason that I, that passage came to mind for me here in John 7 is because after Jesus says those words in John 16, his disciples are scratching their heads and saying, what's he talking about with this little while? <laughs> kind of like the crowd here is is wondering what Jesus is talking about. But I, I think it's an important text to bring up, both the John 14 and the John 16 one, because you do see how here, for those who do not believe, 
Jesus says, you know, you're not going to find me. You're not going to come where I am. But for his disciples, those who do believe, they do. They will go the way that he has gone. They will see him again because they believe in him. And you see that, you know, that really important point that John's been bringing up over and over again, that faith in Christ, this is the way that you receive him is through faith. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point here, because I think that that's the key of the whole thing. Uh, Jesus is teaching people, and those who, who believe in him are going to get the blessings of, of receiving what he is teaching, and those who don't believe him or those who flat-out reject him, like we're going to see the Pharisees do, are going to get nothing but uh, division, schism, uh, pain, and worry from uh, his teaching and presence. Right, and that's a, a good point to bring out, is that the, the people responding to Jesus at this point, he, he John calls them simply the Jews, which many times has meant the religious leaders, sometimes is a bit broader than that. Perhaps here it's a bit broader than that, just given the context of what's coming, where there's this division. But it is a helpful reminder that at this point in the Gospel, Yes, there is a lot of unbelief surrounding Jesus, but there are also very honest questions about Jesus. They really just don't know what to do with him because they're trying to fit different pieces together, and Jesus doesn't seem to be fitting them. And so there are a lot of honest questions. It's not all flat-out unbelief at this point. I, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, it's just a, a helpful reminder so that we don't paint with too broad a brush when we read the New Testament and any of the scriptures and just sort of lump people into one category. These are the bad guys or something like that. But to, to pay attention to the, the various groups within the text, and I think you certainly see that here. At the same time, we shouldn't miss what Jesus says about unbelief, that those who do not believe in him they will be seeking him, but they won't find him, and they will not come where he has gone. That's a, a pretty important point, and as you said, that's going to come up later when Jesus is in the upper room and he speaks to his disciples. There's a great promise for us to cling to. Here, this is maybe the flip side, the warning for those who would not believe. You won't see Jesus. You won't go where he has gone. That's a pretty stark warning. I yeah I I think that that's very true. Yeah, I, I don't even really have anything to add to that. Yeah. So, Pastor Elmer, as I, as I mentioned, then the the Jews who are listening, they're asking these questions about Jesus, saying, "Well, what what is he talking about? What does he mean?" But within their question, they they make mention of something that that maybe we don't always talk about. They say, "Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks?" What are they talking about there? What do they have in mind? And why might that be significant to the way we think about this passage? Yeah, I'm, man, there's, there's so much here, isn't there? So you have, um, you have a people, and, 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 I don't, and I don't know if I'm speaking rightly about this, but to, to the listeners who are listening to this program, we always have to remember um, that Jesus— he is acting in a particular time in a particular place to a particular people who have a particular understanding of the world. And, and Jesus being at the uh, Festival of Booths is in Jerusalem at this time. Jerusalem right now is in, at, at the time of Jesus, is in the Roman uh, province of Judea. Um, I think it would be fair to say that the, the main 
ethnic population in this area is going to be Jewish sons and daughters of Judah uh, by blood. There's also going to be various Romans, various other people of Israelite background, various other people of Greek background, uh, simply because they're in the Roman Empire. But then you have um, Jews who are scattered into the, the parts of the empire that are not um, Jewish uh, per se. Um, these are going to be uh, places to the north. Um, we, we ran into, I guess I'm speaking from now when this is being recorded from our uh, gospel lesson for this last Sunday, uh, talking about when, when Jesus returns to Galilee mm. and is teaching in the synagogues around Capernaum, how um, the word about him gets out in the surrounding regions, into Syria, into the Decapolis, and these places that are going to be more Greek-influenced. And, and these people hearing what Jesus is preaching and doing, and they actually uh, believe and come out and see Jesus, they, they hear him, they bring their sick, their, their demon-possessed to him to be healed. Um, there's these parts of the world where there are Jewish people, but are, are dominated by Gentiles. Hmm. At least when I read this, that's what I am understanding. Now, the Jews ask this question earnestly because you would expect um, that in these areas, um, the Jewish intelligentsia, the Jewish uh, religious leadership, uh, the Jewish political leadership, if Jesus goes into these areas that are not controlled by Jews, um, Maybe he is going to be able to hide from them, to avoid justice from them, um, to avoid persecution by them, simply because he is in an area of the empire that's not controlled by them. Hmm. So, I mean, the misunderstanding then is very similar to ones we've seen previously in John's Gospel. For example, in John chapter 2, when Jesus says he's asked for a sign, and he says, "You destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days, and they think— He's talking about that building, and they say, hey, it's, yeah. it's taken us 46 years to build this. How are you going to rebuild in three days? Or Nicodemus, when Jesus says, you must be born again or born from above, and Nicodemus says, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? It's a, a similar sort of very uh, literal misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about. They think he quite literally is going to go to a part of the world where they're just not going to follow, and, yeah. and that's the way they're thinking, rather than, again, as understanding understanding it as we said earlier that Jesus is speaking about his upcoming death and resurrection and ascension and they don't believe and so they won't follow they're missing that point at the same time the fact that they they do have this question about going to the dispersion going among the Greeks and even teaching the Greeks not just teaching the Jews in the dispersion but teaching the Greeks this does strike me as even though they don't understand, maybe they've unwittingly said something that is true about Jesus' purpose, that he's not just for the Jews, he is for all. Yeah, I, I, I like the way that you put that there, because I think that's what they're doing. I think they're being unknowingly prophetic, because this is exactly, not only exactly what Jesus did, but in his words and his actions and the words of his apostles— um, and the words and the actions of his apostles, they do exactly that. They show that Jesus was somebody who was born, lived, fulfilled the law, died, rose, and ascended for all nations. Hmm. 
Right. And we've seen this elsewhere in John's gospel where, and we will see it going forward as well, where one of the people in the narrative doesn't seem to really understand what's going on, but says something that's quite true about Jesus. So far in the parts that we've read, perhaps the best example is that master of the feast at the wedding in Cana back in John chapter two, where he tells the bridegroom and says, you know, everyone else serves the the poor wine first or yeah. And then, and then later, but you, you are sorry. I got that backwards. Everyone serves the good, the good stuff first and then the poor yeah. wine, but you did it opposite. You saved the choice wine until now. It seems that the master of the feast probably doesn't realize it, but he's saying something about Jesus there. We'll see it going forward in a couple of places. This, I think, is another one of those examples where, hey, they don't realize what they're saying, but they are saying something true. They're asking a yeah. very uh, loaded question, and they just don't realize the truth of it. But as readers of the gospel, we get to see the beauty of of what Jesus is doing among all people, not just Jews, but Greeks as well. Yeah, you get to see the beauty of what Jesus is doing, and, and I think in a very real human way, you kind of get to see the beauty and the genius of the Gospel of John as it's being kind of crafted and stitched together for our spiritual edification. Yeah, the, the way that he, he records Jesus' life is purposeful and very helpful to accomplish that purpose that he tells us at the end, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name, that you would go where he is going as he speaks in this verse. Jesus is going to have, he's going to have more to teach us in this text, but we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking John chapter 7 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 9th. We are studying John chapter 7, verses 32 to 52 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we got up to verse 37, and we are still in the Feast of Booths. But now St. John tells us that we are on the last day of the feast, and he even calls it the great day. And that is the context for these final words of Jesus that we have recorded for us in our text. So before we take a look at those words of Jesus, 
Remind us of the Feast of Booths, its importance. You mentioned a little bit earlier. And then help us to see some of the what we know from extra-biblical sources about the role of water in the Feast of Booths so that we can understand these words of Jesus better. Yeah, so uh, for all you who are listening out there, the, the Feast of Booths, if you kind of want to know where the biblical kind of mandate for its existence uh for this one and for all of the other kind of mandatory high festival days, the chapter that you're going to look for is Leviticus 23. Um, kind of mark that one, that chapter is kind of, if you're wondering about the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Weeks or any of this, all those instructions are in Leviticus 23. And basically, this particular festival, the, the Festival of Booze, happens five days after the... Uh, Day of Atonement, and the uh, law sets out that uh, they are to hold a festival for seven days, kind of after the the harvest for the year. And during this time, they are to give specific sacrifices, eat specific meals, and they are to do all of their dwelling, kind of in in tabernacles or booths, um, kind of temporary shelters. Um, and the reason why they, they live in these temporary shelters, from, from my reading and understanding, is kind of twofold. Number one is to remind the Israelites of their life as they were kind of journeying, uh, moving through the wilderness after the release from Egypt. So they are kind of physically being reminded of of God's promise, his salvation, his working in amongst them. And at the same time, since the Feast of Booths is a festival having to do with the harvest, these booths are also reminiscent of what the, what the people would have been living in and working out of uh, during uh, the time of kind of sowing and taking care of the plants and, and harvesting them. So you, you have this post-harvest festival where, you, where you're where you making a temporary shelter, uh, living with it, giving sacrifices, and doing other religious rites uh, to remind you of the time in the wilderness and to kind of give God thanks for the, the bountiful harvest of the year. So with all that harvest context and the background from the Old Testament you said we can go and read in Leviticus— how does water factor into it? Because I don't, at least in my reading of Leviticus, the, the matter of water doesn't seem to be as big of a deal. Yeah. So if you go and, and read the Leviticus account, as Pastor Apple said, you will not find the mention of water there. However, it, it does seem to be that when I was kind of doing my preparation for uh, this study, that sometime... Uh, in the old history of uh, the Israelites, there did come to pass a, a pretty common tradition of water being associated with uh, the festival of booths. And specifically, there there was a, a rite that was done in the city by the priests, where in kind of the middle days of the feast, there would be a ritualistic... Uh, kind of march down to the Pool of Siloam, hmm. 
where the the priests would gather water. Uh, this water would be collected in a big basin and then carried from the Pool of Siloam back to the temple where the water was uh, was placed on the altar. Um, while this water was being carried up from the Pool of Siloam, uh, people would recite psalms, they would chant, they would sing, and they would rejoice. And you, you have this association uh, with the Feast of Booze, with this water rite um, that Jesus very well uh, would have known about and maybe even is, uh, I don't know if the right word here is riffing off of here, or is kind of co-opting for his own uh, teaching and, and use in this particular uh, story. Mm. Okay, so there's there's some background as to how water might have functioned during the Feast of Booze that Jesus makes use of that context. Looking at some of the notes that you shared with me, Pastor Ulmer, there is a, I didn't get a chance to look up every passage that you shared, but there's a, a I think a passage that I find intriguing from Zechariah 14, another one of those sections of scripture that maybe we don't know as well. In Zechariah 14, 16, and 17, so chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, this is what the prophet writes. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up, that have come against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Which is, so I mean, there's a mention of the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament that talks about the need to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and when you, if you don't, there's no rain. So there's a, at least a little connection within the Old Testament of water, the Feast of Booths. Here Jesus is making that connection with the rites that you've talked about as well, and this is what he says. So let's, let's jump into these fantastic words of Jesus. This is verses 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Tell us about those words of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, what can I say besides, holy moly, is this like some loaded stuff, right? Um, One thing that I will say is is it does seem that in, in the day of Jesus, there was some association both with uh, the Messiah being the one who would give the Holy Spirit to the people and uh, water being connected to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So you have these two things here, and what what Jesus is saying, if if the context is right with the water right and with other uh, scriptures such as what Isaiah 12, 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Uh, Isaiah 55 has something to do with, um, with, with water as well, yeah. the, the promise of, of water. Um, you kind of get this idea that Jesus is speaking these words to them and, and saying almost in a way, and maybe I'm underplaying that, that Jesus is using this opportunity to say that, hey guys, uh, the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths is here, and guess what that fulfillment is? It's me. Well, I think even in the Gospel of John, the connection between water and the Spirit and water and Jesus has been all over the place already. So I, I will probably leave something out, but just thinking through a couple, in John chapter 1, 
John the Baptist testifies of Jesus' baptism, and the way that he knows that Jesus is the Son of God is because the Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained on Jesus. So there you have water, Spirit, Jesus all connected. Uh, in John chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, so right there. And then living water, John chapter 4, Jesus' conversation with the woman from Samaria at the well, right? I mean, then again, and you've got to worship God in spirit and in truth, all those things in the context. John chapter 5, and, the, the yeah, pool of Bethesda. Well, he asks her, like, literally to, to give him water. Right. And and she has this conversation, and, and, at, and in her misunderstanding, he said, if you would have known who was speaking to you, you would ask me for living water, and I would have given it to you. So he, he even there is saying that he is the source of that living water, the source of that spirit. Right, right. I mean, so it's it's all over the place in John's Gospel and in the Scriptures as well, this connection between water and the Spirit. And now Jesus says— when you come to me and drink, you will receive this living water. I mean, this is, as you said, this is Jesus saying all of these things that you are doing here at the Feast of Booths, all of it is fulfilled in me, Jesus is saying. And this is also a theme that we've seen come up time and time again in John's Gospel, that if you really want to understand the Old Testament, if you want to know what Moses was writing about, if you're looking for life in the Scriptures— then you need to believe in Jesus. And so he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, Feast of Booths included, and all of that then is going to come to its final fulfillment and culmination in his death and resurrection. And I I can't remember which seminary professor pointed this out to me, but this is something that I've always appreciated about John's Gospel, is you have these many references uh, between water and Jesus and water and spirit And it all kind of comes to a culmination on the cross when Jesus just amazingly says, I thirst. I mean, what a, and then, and then when his side is pierced, what comes out, but blood and water, water. you know, I mean, all of these things are are pointing us forward to what he's going to do there on the cross. Well, yeah. And you had that, that blood and water image there. I think immediately the image that flows to my mind is Ezekiel's great, uh, prophecy, seeing water flowing out the side of the temple. Sure, sure, yeah, the connection between water and the temple, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, here you kind of maybe are getting a little flavor of of Jesus uh, riffing on that motif and his fulfillment of of that as well, because we know from John's other great writing in in the Revelation what what isn't there in the new uh, heavens and the new earth and the new Jesus. Uh, there's, there's no there's, because it's him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking they need no light of lamp or sun because, but yeah, that's, but you're right. That's right. The lamb is now the temple or even in, in yeah. revelation seven, how are their robes white? Because they've washed them in the blood, of the, the lamb, blood of the lamb, you know, the, the yeah. water and blood again. And I think, so then for us, as we think about these words in John seven, we would be right to, to think about them in connection to holy baptism. Not only there, but certainly I think that's a, a, a helpful thing for us to think about, that to receive this living water from Christ, one of the ways he gives it to us is through holy baptism. I Absolutely. I, I think it's, it's well within uh, the, the Christian understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. So Jesus, he's talking keep going, about, sorry. Uh, well, he's talking about... Uh, 
the the one who believes in him getting the Holy Spirit from him. Uh, he is the source of that. Um, and where where do we come into contact with the Holy Spirit? Well, in the Word and in the water. That's right, which again, we've heard Jesus talk about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Now, John the Evangelist makes the point here in verse 39. This is, perhaps we think of this as an editorial comment on his part. He, they realize later, he and the other apostles, you know, what was Jesus talking about when he said that on the last day of the Feast of Booths? That's what verse 39 is. He was talking about the Spirit, and the reason maybe we didn't understand it then is because historically, chronologically, the Spirit had not been given. Talk a little about that, that note there in verse 39. Yeah, so it, it's always a discussion, at least I've heard it many times, of uh, when when did Jesus get or when did Jesus give the Spirit? And I mean, it it's not—I think we can easily say that was the Holy Spirit always present with Jesus? I think the answer to that question is undoubtedly yes. Jesus is uh, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity— he shares uh, his divine uh, nature with the Father and the Spirit. I mean, one God, three persons, all that awesome stuff. Right. But there's also this this piece of this story where the Messiah, um, Jesus, gets the Holy Spirit in a very specific way to give it out to the world. Uh, he he kind of gets the Spirit in this way at his baptism, it rests on him, and then after he dies and rises, um, he sends forth this Spirit to do a very specific thing, which is to appoint people to Jesus and his work that he might restore them to the Father. It's always one of those fun things as a pastor when we're talking about the work of the Spirit. We always get into discussion about the economic trinity. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit testifies of the Son, that the Son might restore people to the Father. Um, the first time you really see this is when, G- after Jesus gets uh, raised from the dead, he appears to uh, his disciples in the upper room, and what does he do on them? He breathes on them, he gives them the Holy Spirit, he gives them kind of the mandate for the office of the keys, the forgiving and the retaining of sins, so that through their word and through their work, I mean, they're going to be going out and, and preaching and baptizing people so that the Spirit might fall on others. Um, that's kind of the first time that this receiving of the Spirit kind of happens directly from Jesus to his followers, and then it kind of proceeds out from there. Right, in the working out of God's salvation, in the way that he worked it out historically, the giving of the Spirit has not yet happened in those ways that you're describing. And that's how we need to understand a verse yeah. like this. Not drawing conclusions somehow that Jesus was apart from the Holy Spirit prior to his baptism or prior to this moment, or the Holy Spirit didn't exist, something like that. The The rest of the scriptures testify very clearly, as you said, to the fact that the one true God is the triune God who is, was, and always will be. And so we, we are not going to deny any of that from a verse like this, but understanding it you know, chronologically, that there, when, when the Spirit comes to rest on Jesus in his baptism, and God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, that's, that's a, a moment that's very important in terms of the revelation of who Jesus is. John understands it so. And from that moment, then that, that revelation just becomes clearer and clearer 
until after his resurrection, as you said, then he gives that spirit in these ways that are new, right? That That's not yeah. as if the spirit somehow wasn't given in the Old Testament or anything like that, but that there is something that's, that's happening there. And that's what John is making note of here in chapter seven, when it comes to the spirit not yet being given, that's coming after his resurrection in the upper room, in that locked room, also coming on the day of Pentecost, and now for us in Holy Big Baptism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fantastic stuff here in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Of John chapter 7, I will say this is probably the most familiar part to me, those words from Jesus there in 37 to 39. The reaction, however, is one that maybe we we forget. So Jesus has said all of this on the last day of the feast, And here's where some of the division comes. There's some mixed reactions as to who Jesus is. Some say, this is the prophet. Some say, this is the Christ. And then some say, yeah, but Jesus is from Galilee, so how can he be the Christ? So tell us about these at least three that I see reactions to Jesus' words here. Oh, man. I don't know about you, Pastor Apple, but this is one of those things that I— I absolutely like a love and uh it pains me sometimes because it's one of those things where the the conversation that we're going to get to once again is going to lead to do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is or not hmm. because what comes out of here is these people are obviously amazed by what Jesus is saying I'm not saying that they fully understand it but he is teaching in a way that is absolutely kind of mind-blowing to these people, and they have different responses. And my favorite verse of all of this is 43. Therefore, there became a schism in the crowd because of him. Um, depending on whether you believe in Jesus or not, it's going to cause division. And it the division's not like... Uh, Paul might say, because of silly things that we do and sins that we commit, I was baptized by uh, Peter, or I was baptized by Paul, or I was baptized by Apollos, or I think that our carpet should be red, or I think our carpet should be blue. It's the schism, this division of humanity comes based on the belief of who Jesus is. And when he comes, he, he, he does come uh, to bring division, to divide the sheep and the goats, the faithful from the faithless. Um, so you, you have that going on here right in this conversation. And the reason why I love it is, again, they're divided, and you, gotta, you have an instance here where these people are saying true things without even knowing it. Um, is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? Oh, he can't be the Christ because he's uh, he's from Galilee. the The Christ isn't a Galilean; he comes from Bethlehem. And uh, what these people apparently don't know is, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Guess where Jesus is actually from? That's right. He was born in Bethlehem. We know that. That's right. He what was. What I find really striking about this as well that that they all are you know, batting these ideas around. We've encountered these terms before, by the way. Some of these things were asked of John the Baptist. The prophet, that's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, there will be a prophet like me from among your brothers. You need to listen to him. John said he wasn't that. Here they're thinking maybe he's that. The Christ, the anointed one. We've heard these terms before, and Jesus is these things, even though they don't realize it. 
but the, or at least they don't realize the full extent of it. Maybe I should say it that way. The thing that I, I really appreciate about this text is that I, I think you get a, at least a little bit of a glimpse into the mindset of the people who are listening to Jesus. They are taking him seriously and they are listening they to are. his words and they're testing them against the Old Testament, even if they're doing so in flawed ways, which he will point out, you're not reading the Old Testament right. They, they have this expectation. They know, at least in part, these sections of the Old Testament that matter. And so I, I think it's a helpful glimpse into the mindset of the people Jesus is speaking to that you see they really are listening to him. And although many of them will not believe in him, it's not necessarily just because of flat-out ignorance. They, they've paid attention to the Old Testament. They just haven't put Jesus in as the, the key part. Yeah, and I mean, even even then, should I I I don't know the the way I want to phrase this, but if if they were they are paying attention, they obviously know their Old Testament. Yeah, they obviously know the promises, but also they would have known had they paid a little bit more attention that they maybe shouldn't be uh, worrying about this guy being from Galilee because. Uh, the the Christ was also supposed to be uh, a Nazarene, correct? Well, yeah, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, he tells <laughs> us that Jesus yeah. going to live in Nazareth fulfilled that he was a Nazarene, uh, likely a reference yeah. to the fact that Jesus was despised, which we've certainly yeah. seen in John's Gospel that Nazareth and Galilee are not well thought of among other Jews of the day. So, I mean, it is, I guess the, the thing that I I appreciate is that they're paying attention to the Old Testament, even though they don't get it. They, they've been thinking about yeah. these things. And I, I wonder if, if today that would be the same for us. You know, would we say, is this the prophet or we just kind of shrug our shoulders? Um, obviously, they do end up rejecting Jesus. And so in the end, that unbelief is awful. But just to see this mindset that they have of, you know, knowing these terms from the scriptures, paying attention, that's something I think we should take note of. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's let's make sure we've got about five minutes here. I want to make sure we come back to the officers here. The officers now come back, these ones who had been sent to arrest Jesus. And the, the chief priests and Pharisees are saying, hey, wh- what happened here? Where's Jesus? Talk about what, what this conversation entails between these officers, the Pharisees and, and scribes. And then Nicodemus pops back into the text briefly. Help us into this last part of our, our text. Yeah, so you get you get this interesting interaction where these officers come back not doing the job for which they were assigned, and when uh, they're they're questioned about it, uh, when they're questioned why don't they have the one whom they were sent to arrest, uh, their response is very interesting. They said, "No one has ever spoken like this man." Uh, this kind of goes back to what we started our conversation off with. These these people aren't kind of ignorant or naive of of God's word. Uh, when they when they go out to arrest him, uh, whether it's pressure from the crowd or them listening to Jesus themselves or a combination of the two, um, they hear his words and for some reason they don't they don't lay their hands on him. They don't arrest him. Uh, I think we could we could say on on our end, this is our, us understanding that it wasn't Jesus's time yet. So right. um, no matter what they did, they weren't going to lay their hands on Jesus. It's kind of the, the story of salvation playing out exactly how it's supposed to. But the Pharisees, they don't, they don't take this response very well. Um, at least the way I read it, they, they kind of 
they kind of get a little bit peeved off at these guys and and um they they kind of accuse him of of believing in Jesus. Yeah. And then Nicodemus comes in and 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 tries to defend Jesus by by reminding them, "Hey guys, we don't get to arrest people or or lay hands on people or even put them to death unless they get a hearing, right, guys?" And their their response to Nicodemus, who is a member of the Pharisees as well, is, "You're not a believer too, are you, Nicodemus?" Yeah. Well, uh, you, this is one of those. I don't think we can we can say that Nicodemus is all the way there yet in this passage, but he is def- definitely a Jesus a listener and sympathizer one who has already come to Jesus at night and one who by the time of Jesus's death um is is there uh, at the cross who who does believe in Jesus yeah. um but he gets accused of of basically uh being a galilean of himself a follower of Jesus and uh, you you get this inter this interesting interaction here where the Pharisees are once again bringing up the fact that a prophet can't come from uh, Galilee can't come from these despised places, um, and and their their problem here is twofold. Number one, we've already talked about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the town of David, because he was of the line and lineage of David. And number two, one of the interesting things I learned uh, through the reading of of the commentaries and such was that their statement about prophets not coming from Galilee was just simply not true. Yeah. Um, that prophets had risen up from all the 12 tribes, including uh, the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, where Galilee was. Mm. I think here specifically what Jonah and Nahum are both from Galilee. I think you're correct. I, I, I'm not sure about Nahum. I, I do recall Jonah being from the northern part of Israel. I think that's, yeah. that's correct. Uh, one of the things that, and there's so much I, we could say about this, but just the this last part of the text does show that very dark side of unbelief, lest what we were saying earlier about, hey, they're thinking about the Old Testament, that's good. Well, yes, it is. But if it leads to unbelief, you see just how dark and evil that becomes and how quickly it can become that as the Pharisees begin to carry that to its full conclusion here. It doesn't come to a complete conclusion until the end of the gospel where they crucified Jesus. But you, you do see how that unbelief, when you are looking at the Old Testament, but you don't believe in Jesus, that doesn't end well. And that's what you see from the, the Pharisees here who are, you know, already starting to accuse these officers and probably some hostility toward Nicodemus. We're going to see that growing in John's gospel. It's going to come apparent again in John chapter 9 with that man born blind. And he's actually going to get thrown out of the synagogue because they they think he believes in Jesus. So we, we certainly see the dark side, the very dark side of unbelief, not something to be trifled with, as if we can just sort of, you know, play with God's word and think about it without ever believing. That's that's where it's always leading us to is faith. And if we reject that, that's very dangerous. I think you see that from the yeah, Pharisees can, here. Yeah, and you can see that um that that word of verse four forty three actually kind of comes to light here in the Pharisees' inner circle because uh, those temple guards are going to be more more like them than Jesus is. Mm. So you have the Pharisees against the, the temple guards and the Pharisees against one of their own Nicodemus, and what is the source of division amongst them? It's Jesus. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Again, so much to talk about from this text, Pastor Ulmer, even one that we don't know very well, but we are running short on time. Pastor Matt Ulmer is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us today with John chapter 7, verses 32 to 52. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a pleasure. Jesus has living water for you, dear friends. Receive his gift of life. Listen to his word. Trust in him. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.